This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax must update rewards. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of war and racial discrimination and tensions that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was World War II. Tensions were incredibly high between Japan and the United States after the attack on Pearl Harbor. While overseas, American soldiers tuning their radios to hear the latest news from the States may have caught the following broadcast. Quote, Good evening again to the all-forgetting and forgotten men, the American fighting men of the South Pacific. Wonder who your wives and girlfriends are out with tonight. End quote. Such remarks were allegedly recorded by a woman named Iva Taguri, a radio broadcaster stationed in Japan who came to be known as Tokyo Rose. The interesting thing was, Iva was American, born on the 4th of July, no less. Through unfortunate circumstances, she found herself trapped in Tokyo during one of the worst points in the city's history, recording propaganda broadcasts for the Japanese army. Iva always maintained that she was merely following orders as a prisoner of war. She claimed that she intentionally delivered her broadcasts with heavy sarcasm to subvert their messages. And yet, after the war ended, Iva Taguri was convicted of treason against the United States. Picture a murderer a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the ParCast Network. Today, we'll be exploring the life of Iva Taguri, a Japanese-American radio broadcaster who found herself caught between two countries during World War II. In today's episode, we'll examine how tensions between the United States and Japan led Iva to become trapped in enemy territory. Next week, we'll explore Iva's life after the war, including her trial for treason. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Iva Taguri was born in Los Angeles, California on the 4th of July, 1916. Her father, June, emigrated to the U.S. from Japan in 1899, and her mother, Fumi, followed in 1913. Her parents operated a small business selling imported Japanese goods. Iva and her siblings were raised in a very westernized fashion at the insistence of her father, June. She went to church every Sunday, took piano lessons, played tennis, and had a crush on actor Jimmy Stewart. According to Iva, some Japanese was spoken around the home while she was growing up, but when she and her siblings began attending school, English became the standard. Even today, many immigrants make the choice to leave behind their past in order to fully adapt to their new culture. According to research conducted in 2015 by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, assimilation amongst Asian and Latin American groups today looks incredibly similar to how it did generations ago. Most immigrants quickly adapt to American customs once they arrive. Before we start to delve into psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. There are differing opinions on whether complete assimilation is beneficial or effective. According to a 2012 study by the American Psychological Association, many people believe that assimilation is the ideal approach for immigrants because it allows individuals to enter and adapt to the dominant culture more easily, effectively reducing the prejudice they face. The idea of reducing prejudice sounds great, but completely eliminating all the unique customs and traditions they've grown up with must be difficult. Which is why some argue for multicultural ideology, which is the belief that an immigrant cultural group should be allowed to retain their values, traditions, and languages. Those in favor of this ideology argue that prejudice can also be diminished through the appreciation of cultural differences. Retaining their unique identities can also elevate the self-esteem of people in minority groups. June Taguri, however, fell on the other side of the debate, choosing to assimilate to American culture completely. At the time, many immigrants coming to the United States just wanted to blend in and provide a normal life for their children. Racial tensions were high, and immigrants were often stereotyped and discriminated against, sometimes to the point of violence a problem that continues to this day. According to Psychology Today, this boils down to a fear of the other. Immigrants are marked as outsiders and are often only begrudgingly tolerated in their new countries. This, in turn, makes it impossible for them to ever feel as if they really belong in their new society. It creates a social divide which is difficult to overcome. This definitely mirrors feelings and experiences many Japanese immigrants shared during Iva's time. In the early 20th century, there was a wave of prejudice against Asian immigrants, often referred to, in extremely racist terms, as the, quote, yellow peril. 
The term was first used in 1895 to describe the rising fears of an Asian invasion after many Asian immigrants came to the U.S. looking for work. This was right around the beginning of industrialization, an era that saw rapid advancements in manufacturing technology. Many jobs that had previously required specific training or skills were quickly becoming mechanized. This allowed the jobs to be performed by unskilled laborers, many of them women and racial minorities. This shift resulted in a great panic in the United States. Sensationalized reports painted the Japanese as the enemy of the American worker. Japanese citizens were barred from joining unions, and many legislators began calling for a Japanese Exclusion Act in an effort to protect the U.S. from immigrants. All of this led to an increase in threats and violence against Japanese-American workers. Such tensions led to an eventual gentleman's agreement between the U.S. and Japan, which put a limit on the number of people who could emigrate from Japan after 1908. That agreement didn't necessarily limit the number of Japanese-Americans living stateside. Many first-generation immigrants from Japan had intended to return home eventually, but then decided to stay in the U.S. after the birth of their children. By 1930, half of the Japanese-descended people in America were second-generation U.S. citizens. These second-generation Americans were more likely to speak English than Japanese and were more likely to prefer American sports, food, and music, just like Iva. After finishing high school, Iva enrolled at UCLA, majoring in zoology. She was a typical college student. She frequently attended football games and was well-liked by her classmates. She graduated in 1940 with future plans to become a physician. After graduation, she spent much of her time helping out her father by working in the family store. But the next year, in June of 1941, Iva's mother Fumi received a letter that would change Iva's life. Fumi's twin sister, Shizu, who resided in Japan, was gravely ill with diabetes. Fearing death, Shizu asked Fumi to come visit and assist in her care. But Fumi herself was also incredibly ill from diabetes. Thus, she asked her daughter Iva to travel to Japan in her place. The timing worked out for Iva, who had graduated a year ago and still had no job prospects outside of helping out at the family store. She didn't mind the change of pace. But there were quite a few problems here with Iva's travels. First, 1941 was not exactly a great time to be traveling to Japan. Relations between Japan and the United States were growing tense due to Japan's expansionist policies. Neither country was involved in World War II in 1941, though that would soon change. On top of that, due to the urgency of Iva's travel plans, she didn't have enough time to obtain a passport. However, June was able to secure a certificate of identification for Iva, prepared by a Japanese-American notary public. According to American legal history authority Stanley Cutler, the document was a valid proof of citizenship that would allow her to leave and re-enter the country. However, according to a law enacted in 1918, during times of war, citizens are required to have a passport to enter or depart the country. Again, although the U.S. and Japan were not at war at the time, tensions were growing fast. If war broke out while Iva was abroad without a passport, it might be hard for her to get back home. Iva's father, June, decided to go ahead and submit an application for Iva's passport. 
As her departure date grew closer, they were told the passport would be awaiting Iva's arrival at the American Consulate General in Yokohama, Japan. With the passport problem squared away, on July 5th, 1941, one day after her 25th birthday, Iva sailed from San Pedro, California to Yokohama. The journey would take 19 days. Upon arrival in Japan, Aiva experienced quite a bit of a culture shock. Due to her westernized upbringing, Aiva couldn't speak or understand Japanese, nor did she particularly enjoy Japanese food. In a letter home to her family, Aiva wrote, quote, I've finally gotten around to eating rice three times a day. It's killing me, but what can I do? End quote. She also wrote that the weather was horribly hot and uncomfortable. Iva found herself lost in a country that should have felt like a second home due to her familial ties. Instead, it was completely foreign to her. Iva knew virtually no one outside of her aunt and uncle. And even then, since she was not particularly close with them, she didn't feel entirely comfortable in their home. She was totally isolated, without any familiar faces or any news from back home. Due to the language barrier, Iva found it difficult to keep up with the news and was late to hear about the growing tensions between the states and Japan. To make matters worse, when Iva went to the consulate general to pick up her passport, it wasn't there. Her application had been received, as she'd been told, but nothing had been done about it. Iva attempted to apply again for a passport, but she was met with resistance. Under the Immigration Act of 1924, there was a total prohibition of Asian immigration into the United States. Even though Iva had documentation of her U.S. citizenship, anyone applying for a U.S. passport while living in Japan was going to have a hard time. Months passed, and she had yet to receive an update on her application. Meanwhile, the rumors of war with the United States began to look more and more realistic. Without a passport, Iva feared that she might never be able to leave. She would be stuck in Japan, away from her family and friends, while a war raged on around her. On December 1st, her fears became reality. She received a letter from the U.S. consul informing her that her passport applications had never been processed. She was back to square one. Little did Iva know, it would be a very long time before she would be able to return home. Something was about to happen that would make history and change Iva's life forever. The attack on Pearl Harbor. Coming up, we'll explore how World War II changed Iva's life for the worse. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity. 
with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Now, back to the story. On December 7, 1941, Japanese forces launched a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, a U.S. naval base near Honolulu, Hawaii. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The Japanese have treacherously violated the long-standing peace between us. Many American soldiers and sailors have been killed by enemy action. American ships have been sunk. American airplanes have been destroyed. The attack was incredibly devastating. Over 18 U.S. ships were hit, killing over 2,000 American military personnel. The day after the attack, President Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed a joint session of Congress to declare war on Japan. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. No matter how long it may take us, to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Any previous diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Japan immediately ceased. At this time, Iva voluntarily withdrew her passport application and offered to stay in the country for the duration of the war. Iva asserted that the sole reason she did this was because she didn't have enough fare money to leave the country, even if she did get her passport. During the war, repatriation ships were taking Americans, like Iva, back to the United States. But the fare was approximately $400, nearly $7,000 today. That was far too much for Iva to pay. There was little she could do but stay in Japan and make the best of things. She took Japanese culture and language classes, which she paid for by giving piano lessons to children in her neighborhood. Iva tried her best to assimilate to the new culture, but it's safe to assume she was feeling lost. According to Psychology Today, human beings have a strong need for identity. We feel a sense of belonging and pride when we can identify with a group. Iva was being torn between two groups she identified with. First and foremost, she identified as an American, but because of her Japanese heritage, she was being denied access to her home country. And things weren't going great for her in Japan either. Her American upbringing left her feeling alienated from Japanese culture. Instead of feeling like she was a part of two cultural groups, she was being ostracized from both of them. Psychology Today also notes that war is inherently related to group identity, and a feeling of rivalry between groups can easily be created due to a clash in culture. 
Iva was caught in the middle of this clash, and neither side was willing to take ownership of her. This had to have been incredibly isolating for her. Yet Iva's allegiance to the United States never faltered. She frequently caused arguments amongst her Japanese family members by saying things like, Japan started the war, and the Americans will win. Gossip began to spread about Iva's pro-American attitude. Police began visiting the family's home regularly to question them about Iva. Neighbors began harassing the family for housing the enemy. Children would even insult Iva on the street, calling her a horio, or a captured enemy. Here again, the idea of group identity comes into play. As an American, Iva was marked as being other by those who were native Japanese, so they feared and distrusted her. Around 1942, Japanese government officials visited Iva, demanding that she renounce her United States citizenship and pledge her loyalty to Japan. Iva refused. She may have been trapped in enemy territory, but she was an American through and through. Iva was officially branded an enemy alien. This meant she was denied a war ration card, which would allow the holder to obtain food or other commodities that were being rationed. Iva may not have even realized the consequences she'd face for standing with the U.S. Without a ration card, simply finding enough food to eat would be difficult for her. But she didn't back down or change her allegiances. The legal consequences were only the beginning. After Iva pronounced her support for America, neighbors started harassing her, calling for her to leave the area. She resisted at first, but eventually she folded under the pressure. She left her aunt and uncle's house and moved into a boarding house by herself. Iva's aunt and uncle were the only people she really knew in Japan. It was difficult for her to make friends since she didn't speak Japanese. She was now totally alone, branded an enemy of the state and unable to return home. It's impossible to overstate the effect this must have had on Iva psychologically. According to a 2016 article by K.E. Miller and A. Rasmussen, refugees who have been displaced from their countries due to warfare are much more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and PTSD. This stems from a number of stressors, including discrimination, social isolation, difficulty finding housing, and uncertainty regarding their residence status. She did experience all of these stressors due to her displacement during the war. To make matters worse, Iva eventually stopped hearing from her family in the U.S. She was unsure what had happened to them, and all her attempts to contact them went unanswered. Having already left her only familial connections in Japan, Iva was now completely isolated on both fronts. Leaving behind family and friends is another stressor that affects refugees. For those who lose contact with their families or whose family members disappeared during the conflict, the emotional process is similar to the grief after a loved one's death. Iva had no reason to believe that her parents were dead, but without any indication of what had happened to them, she must have been terribly worried. Since she didn't understand much Japanese, she couldn't follow the news about what was going on in America. That would soon change. Without a family to support her or a war ration card, Iva needed work. She turned to Japan's Domei News Agency, where she got a job listening to and transcribing American military broadcasts. While at Domei, Iva met Philippe D'Aquino. Philippe was Portuguese-Japanese and shared Iva's pro-American stance. 
Iva and Philippe hit it off immediately. She finally had a friend who understood her. It was also at Dome that Iva at last heard word of what happened to her family. They'd been put into an internment camp, along with tens of thousands of other Japanese Americans. Ironically, they'd been deemed enemies because of their Japanese heritage, just as Iva had been deemed an enemy for her American citizenship. This also confirmed that Iva would have been in a terrible position if she had been able to return to the States. No matter what she did, her situation would have been bleak. Adding to her trouble, Iva found that the job at Dome didn't offer nearly enough money to pay for her housing. Philippe was helping Iva, but she was very independent and didn't like to ask for money from friends. It's possible her stubborn self-reliance was a response to her social isolation. Since she'd moved out of her aunt and uncle's house, she'd been entirely alone. So by this point, she was accustomed to making it through on her own. But try as she might, she found out she couldn't just white-knuckle her way through starvation. Her poor diet, due to her lack of food rations, led to malnutrition and scurvy. She was hospitalized for six weeks. Suddenly, Iva had to pay for her hospital bills on top of her food and housing. She was clearly in no physical condition to work, but she didn't have a choice. She started looking for a second job. And so, in August 1943, Iva answered a newspaper advertisement looking for English-language typists for a station called Radio Tokyo, a seemingly small decision that would turn Iva's life upside down. On her second day on the job, Iva watched as three foreign men were escorted through the office by guards. Iva asked a coworker what was going on. She was told they were allied prisoners of war who had been captured in Southeast Asia. They were brought to Japan to do radio broadcasts. The three men were Major Charles Cousins, an Australian who was captured in Singapore, Captain Wallace E. Ince, an American who was captured in Corregidor, and Lieutenant Norman Reyes, a Filipino who was captured in Bataan. Iva felt sorry for them. They were horribly underweight, with dirty clothes and sullen faces. And they were foreigners trapped in Japan, just like her. She asked her coworker if there was any way she could meet with them. Soon, Iva was meeting with the prisoners of war regularly. They were some of the only foreign nationals she knew, and she quickly grew close to them. She learned that the men all had prior radio experience, which was very useful in the eyes of the Japanese military. They'd been working on an English-language propaganda campaign, but all their English-speaking broadcasters had terrible pronunciation and grammar. Native English speakers could be an incredible asset. Japanese officials had the men create a program aimed to capture the attention of U.S. armed forces. The program, called Zero Hour, was part of a psychological warfare campaign to lower the morale of American soldiers. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines psychological warfare as the use of propaganda generally intended to demoralize the enemy to break his will to fight or resist. This also includes the use of brainwashing techniques to shape the enemy's thinking. The intention of the Japanese military was to design the propaganda in such a subtle way that the American soldiers wouldn't even notice it. They hid small segments of grim news and pro-Japanese propaganda within a program full of popular music and skits. 
Radio Tokyo wasn't the only station broadcasting English-language propaganda, but it did become one of the most successful. At the beginning, each program consisted of a 15-minute broadcast of popular music intercut with brief news segments. The news segments were mostly negative and consisted of updates on the difficulties that were going on back in the States. Eventually, the program expanded into a 75-minute broadcast. Over time, the Japanese hoped the darker messages would begin to wear the soldiers down. However, as an American ally, Major Charles Cousins had other plans. Charles was chosen to run the program, with assistance from the two other prisoners of war. The scripts the men read on the air were initially written by Japanese staff members, rather than the broadcasters themselves. But the men argued that they'd be able to write more believable and comprehensible material, since they were more familiar with the English language and Western culture. This argument worked. Their Japanese supervisors allowed the men to begin writing their own broadcasts. They stuck to the same format as before, but often laced the news broadcasts with slight double entendres and heavy sarcasm that could be hard for non-native English speakers to detect. This way, they were able to satisfy the demands of their supervisors without having to betray their own sensibilities and beliefs. A very sneaky solution to the situation they found themselves in. As they began to gain more trust and control over the program, Charles had another clever idea. He recruited Iva to join the broadcasting team. Coming up, we'll take a look at Iva's new career as a radio host. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Now, back to the story. In 1943, Iva Taguri's friendship with the Allied POWs at Radio Tokyo led to a unique opportunity. Major Charles Cousins asked her to join the broadcasting team for Zero Hour, the Japanese propaganda program he had recently commandeered. Iva had absolutely no experience in broadcasting or writing scripts, but Charles wanted her for her gravelly, masculine voice. Most female broadcasters at the time had smooth, sultry voices, so Iva stood out as more unconventional. According to Charles' rationale, such an unfamiliar voice would be less likely to induce feelings of homesickness amongst the American soldiers, thus rendering the propaganda techniques useless. Iva began broadcasting on the program under the alias Orphan Annie, a fitting name since she saw herself as somewhat of an orphan without a country. Charles served as a voice coach, instructing Iva on her delivery. This included encouraging her to mispronounce words often, so that she would come across as a Japanese native. The public's susceptibility to propaganda depends on a variety of factors, including the credibility of the speaker. Even something as seemingly minor as mispronunciation can impact the listener's perception and discredits the person speaking. Charles told Iva he wanted a Yankee voice, always very happy and upbeat. He told her to follow any mention of the word enemy with a laugh. 
the messages played out in an almost humorous tone, portraying the Japanese as clueless and allowing the audience to brush off the propaganda. According to Time, some of these messages included calling U.S. soldiers boneheads of the Pacific and insinuating that their wives back home were being unfaithful to them. In the opening line of one of Iva's broadcasts, she states, quote, Hi, boys. This is your old friend, Orphan Annie. I've got some swell records just in from the States. You'd better listen to them while you can, because late tonight our flyers are coming over to bomb the 43rd group when you're all asleep. So listen while you're still alive. End quote. The wording is so extreme that it verges on sarcastic and tongue-in-cheek. However, at the same time, you can see how that sarcastic tone would be lost on some ears, including Japanese officials who are unfamiliar with the English language. Or American officials who might misconstrue Iva's intentions and take her to be a traitor. Because of Iva's American background and her close friendship with cousins, it's difficult to deny that she must have understood the sarcasm in these messages. She wanted to be a member of this team of broadcasters that was attempting to dismantle the Japanese propaganda machine. In fact, many U.S. soldiers greatly enjoyed the program. Some paid no attention to Orphan Annie's messages and merely waited to hear the songs that followed. But some, according to veteran Will Clover, tuned in just to mock what Orphan Annie had to say. In an analysis of the radio program completed by the U.S. Army, it was found that Iva's Orphan Annie broadcasts never hurt morale. If anything, they may have helped it. Veteran and war correspondent Rex Gunn alleged that Orphan Annie was the most widely known enemy radio personality in the Pacific, and the soldiers frequently speculated about her real identity. But many American soldiers couldn't be bothered to remember the names of individual Japanese broadcasters. They commonly referred to every female broadcaster as Tokyo Rose. From 1943 to 44, Radio Tokyo had a huge audience, stretching through the Pacific all the way to northern New Guinea. However, its popularity would soon begin to fade. In 1944, Charles Cousins left the station following a devastating heart attack. Without his writing abilities and supervision, the quality of the broadcast suffered greatly. The following year brought a few bright spots. In 1945, at age 29, Iva married Philippe D'Aquino, the man she had met at Domaine News Agency years prior. And in August that same year, after the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japanese forces surrendered to the Allies. World War II was finally over. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. Iva's last broadcast was on August 14, 1945, approximately two years after she was first hired to the station. In the end, roughly 340 broadcasts were recorded during Iva's time at Radio Tokyo. For two weeks after Iva's final broadcast, she eagerly awaited the American occupation of Tokyo, excited to celebrate the victory of the states. Unfortunately, Iva would continue to be the recipient of bad luck. Her radio work had captured the attention of a great deal of U.S. soldiers, but their higher-ups in the U.S. government weren't Iva's biggest fans. 
While scouring Japan for people of interest after the war, U.S. officials began to seek out the woman known as Tokyo Rose and indict her for treason. The officials didn't realize that Tokyo Rose was a moniker the soldiers had assigned to any disembodied female voice they heard over the radio. There was no single woman who called herself Tokyo Rose. There were approximately 13 English-speaking women who had broadcast from Japan during the war, including Aiva Taguri. Officials believed that one of them must be Tokyo Rose. The only question was, which one? Aiva was aware of the rumors about the so-called Tokyo Rose, but she had no idea the U.S. government was getting in on the search, too. On August 31, 1945, Aiva received a call from one of her husband Philippe's friends. He told Iva that he had met two American reporters who were offering $2,000 for the exclusive on Tokyo Rose's story. Iva knew that she wasn't the actual Tokyo Rose, as no one woman could really claim to be. But the money was tempting. Valued today, $2,000 is equivalent to approximately $28,000. And Philippe pointed out that this would give her the chance to speak out about how she and the other prisoners of war had been able to sabotage Japanese propaganda. Iva agreed to meet the reporters. The next morning, Iva walked into a guest room at the Imperial Hotel. The curtains were all drawn, and a gun laid on one of the tables. Suddenly, Iva felt incredibly uneasy. The reporters were Clark Lee of the International News Service, and Harry Brundage, an associate editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. The men were friends, and both part of the Hearst Publishing Circle. They handed Iva a piece of paper and asked her to sign it. It was a contract that stated, among other things, that she, Iva Taguri, was the one and only Tokyo Rose, and that Cosmopolitan magazine would pay her $2,000 in exchange for the exclusive rights to her story. Iva initially took issue with the one and only part. She claimed there were many English-speaking female broadcasters who the name Tokyo Rose could apply to, but she did admit she was one of them which was good enough for Lee and Brundage. And apparently, the white lie seemed harmless enough for Iva, too. She signed the contract, then openly spoke about her time at Radio Tokyo, beginning with her first broadcast in November of 1943. That date gave Lee pause. He admitted to hearing mention of a Tokyo Rose a whole year earlier in 1942. This woman may not actually be the one they were looking for, But he pressed ahead anyway. By the end of the interview, Lee and Brundage had over 17 pages of notes to work with. Iva left feeling content. After speaking with the journalists, she no longer felt any unease. In fact, it was somewhat cathartic. She had a bounce in her step on the way back to her house, confident that she would soon be on a plane back home once she got her $2,000. The following day, Lee's story broke in the Los Angeles Examiner. Tokyo Rose was suddenly front-page news. And Iva Taguri was suddenly wanted for treason. Lee's story contained many fabricated elements and seemed to label Iva as guilty of treason without any evidence. Lee stated, quote, Iva admitted that she did not think it through when she took the job. 
she said she believed Americans would enjoy her music and laugh at her propaganda. However, during the interview, Ivan never said she didn't think the job through. Similarly, she didn't refer to the messages she broadcast as propaganda. She certainly did hope people would laugh at her broadcasts, but not for the reasons Lee was suggesting. Brundage, likewise, had written his article to look like a confession of treason, but his was apparently not scathing enough. When he turned in his story to the editor of Cosmopolitan, he was turned away. The editor refused to publish a story that might serve to glorify a traitor, even if it was an alleged confession. Furious, Brundage took a different angle. He published his entire 17 pages of notes from the interview and called for Iva's immediate arrest, instigating a public outcry against the alleged traitor. With the pains of war still fresh in the minds of the public, the reaction to these articles would be intense and immediate. For Iva Taguri, her life was about to take a nasty turn. By agreeing to give the interview as Tokyo Rose, she had set in motion a series of events that would occupy her life for the next 30 years. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll talk about Iva's arrest, allegations of treason, and lengthy trial. Her naive decision to take the credit for all of Tokyo Rose's broadcasts came back to bite her in ways she'd never imagined. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to support the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Kaylee Huffman and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.